0: Women's health needs, and especially our hormonal needs, are finally receiving the attention we've deserved for years. And Hormone Harmony, a new sponsor of Self Work, rates as one of the top five hormonal supplement companies out there. If you're a young woman struggling with that week before your period when moods can be all over the place, and I certainly don't miss that, or older when you're so glad menopause is here, but if you're like me, you sometimes stare at yourself in the mirror and ask, where did I go? Hormone Harmony has become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media, and a bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Basically, if you breathe in and out slowly twice, that's the amount of time it takes for one more woman to understand she can reach out for help, no matter what her age, through Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code SELFWORK at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code SELFWORK for 15% off today. This is SELFWORK, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At SELFWORK, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret. And Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist, and I started Self Work six years ago now to reach those of you who might be very interested already in psychological and emotional issues, but also to those of you who might be seeking answers or even are a little skeptical about mental health treatment. Welcome to all of you. Before we get started today talking about self-forgiveness, let's hear from BetterHelp, one of SelfWorks' most tried-and-true sponsors. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist, how long it takes, how vulnerable you feel asking around for names, how far you might have to travel to get to their office. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact... Their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days. And you can talk to them in a first session to see if it's a good fit. And if so, you're on your way. But if not, rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. This very caring process takes so much of the responsibility and the vulnerability out of it for you. Now, that doesn't mean you won't feel vulnerable in actual therapy, But the time and difficulty of finding someone is what they handle for you. And of course, since you can text, chat, or talk virtually, then all of those avenues are open to you. Their counselors are licensed professionals, LPCs, psychologists, social workers, men, women, they have different specialties, just like in your community. And they can focus on what you need, where you are in your life. The pandemic forced many counselors to work virtually, myself included. But what I learned is that virtual work feels different But I also found it very helpful and for some people, much easier. So here's their offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link, betterhelp.com slash self-work. That's betterhelp.com slash self-work. Today, we're going to talk about guilt and self-forgiveness. Basically, there are two forms of guilt. Healthy guilt, or when you feel remorse for something that you did or said or felt, and then maladaptive guilt, which is guilt that doesn't serve any positive rationale, but instead eats you up from the inside. For example, survivor's guilt, a fairly common kind of guilt, is maladaptive. That term may mean different things for each of you, survivor's guilt. For any who've been in the military, it's been shown to be a much more difficult part of healing than the actual memories of wartime, injuries, or even death. For those of you who survived a terrible hurricane, and that could be just this week, it may mean something else to you. Please know that this episode may be triggering for those of you who've been through a difficult experience and listen with caution and care. I'll also offer my own seven steps to self-forgiveness. For many, especially for those who struggle with depression already, self-forgiveness can be a huge struggle. The voicemail for today isn't meant to create any kind of political or spiritual furor, so please recognize that. To me, the poignancy of this listener's question rang very true, and that is, what am I supposed to do when my therapist seemed to understand and have compassion for a painful memory I shared with him? And then I later learn he has very strong opinions about the rightness and wrongness of that same painful choice and voiced them to me or let it slip, as he told me. How am I supposed to heal from that? The topic is abortion, but the process, not the content, is why I'm responding and want to respond. It's about experiencing a betrayal of trust by your therapist so sit back and relax or keep driving or whatever you do to listen to self-work i want to start today with a personal story my mother used to tell me her own story about how as a one and a half year old i had been diagnosed with leukemia and back then leukemia killed My name had been submitted by my family physician and another specialist to a famous physician-slash-leukemia researcher who was keynoting a conference at a Memphis hospital. That doctor was literally going to pull two names out of a hat—this was 1956—and treat those two children, at least if he could. At least 100 hopeful patients' names were submitted by their physicians attending this conference, and my name was not only chosen once— but twice my mother always called these events a miracle because for her her daughter didn't die but received life-saving treatment that happened to be that i didn't have leukemia but there was another problem that was fixable i however always wondered about those other children what happened to them what kind of miracle was that certainly not for them all of whom were very very sick I've never forgotten the story, and for years I would chastise myself for never doing anything important enough to warrant being saved. I felt guilt, and felt guilty for something I didn't cause but obviously had an impact on others. I can only hope that the doctor chose another name. I've since realized how irrational that guilt was, understandable perhaps, but not rational. And then self-forgiveness was available to me. We also focus specifically on survivor's guilt in episode 240, so if you're curious about that particular kind of guilt, the link will be in the show notes. Psych Central features a story on guilt, calling it the most crippling of emotions, and I quote, guilt is frequently viewed as a virtue, as a high sense of responsibility and morality. The truth, however, is that guilt is the greatest destroyer of emotional energy. It leaves you feeling immobilized in the present by something that has already occurred. There are two myths about guilt that abound, and those are, first, guilt is a valuable exercise from which you will learn and grow. Or two, if you consume yourself with guilt, you won't make the same mistake again. (laughs) I couldn't agree more that these are definitely myths. Neither one of them are true. Guilt has its place when it's adaptive, when you realize an own responsibility for screwing up somehow, for cheating on a test, for having an affair, for ghosting someone. It's your conscience reminding you that hurting others or acting without integrity isn't who you want to be. And if you don't feel guilt, then that's a problem as well, because that can mean that you're someone who struggles or doesn't know how to feel empathy. But then there's maladaptive guilt, guilt that simply eats you up. Excessive guilt or rumination about the past is an integral part of the definition of depression. It's one of the major symptoms. And in fact, excessive guilt can lead to anxiety as well. If you carry around guilt and are filled with self-recrimination, then you build a lack of self-confidence and trust in your own decision-making, and all in all, come to believe that the mistakes you have made define you. Or if you keep them constantly in your head, usually we call this beating yourself up, you'll be nervous and anxious about what's to come and your role in it. Recently, in fact, one of my own patients, whose relationship with her daughter has been complicated and difficult, and which she has been at times overly reactive and has lost her temper, said, I'm just afraid I'm going to repeat the same pattern over and over. Now that led to a discussion of how she might be building a self-fulfilling prophecy, instead of noting and reminding herself of the tremendous progress that she's made. Her anxiety was leading her into a greater sense of guilt, rather than her more rational self claiming what she's learned and forgiving herself for those things she struggled with. Even though I've linked to an episode I did about survivor's guilt, I want to say a couple more things about it. Many of you listening may have experienced your own version of survivor's guilt during the pandemic. Why did your cousin die and you didn't? Why is someone dealing with long COVID and all you experienced was a bad cold? survivor's guilt can be a part of post-traumatic stress disorder but it's not one and the same why because it may or may not be the result or the consequence of a trauma that's way outside what's ordinary for most humans and that is what a diagnosis of PTSD requires and the interesting thing about the pandemic was that yes it was way outside what's ordinary for most of us but we were also all sharing in that trauma to a greater or lesser extent I thought an article written by staff members of a palliative care group in California said it eloquently, and I quote, We are hurt by what has not hurt us. This feeling can be both rational and irrational, conscious and unconscious. Literally and figuratively, our brothers and sisters, our spouses and life partners, our grandparents, parents, and children, at home, across the street, the country, and the globe, are dying of what we have escaped. And sitting in a quiet room in front of our computers and smartphones, many of us feel guilty about not doing enough. For some, there is guilt about not using the time off in the lockdown productively to learn to bake bread, speak Spanish, or be a better parent. I've seen this with so many different kinds of people, way outside of the experience of the pandemic. Those whose loved ones died by suicide or in a car accident or some mass tragedy. But now let's talk about another version of maladaptive guilt. When it's easy to feel guilty for being lucky or having achieved. You might be the sibling that was born healthy, where one or more of your siblings were not. You may have gotten into a college where your best friend really wanted to go. Your marriage may be good when a friend's marriage is falling apart. You get the job. You win a competition. You get pregnant when someone else is dealing with infertility. You achieve something that others are trying to achieve. And somehow, you feel guilty for it. This is a cousin, in some ways, of survivor's guilt, except you are enjoying some kind of success or achievement that others that you care about are not. Then there's an existential variety of guilt, meaning that there are ways you can feel guilt for enjoying your life where there are so many other reports of devastation elsewhere. Why were you born into a healthy family or a thriving culture when so many were not? This kind of existential question can rack someone's heart and mind, and there is no rational reason. You simply were. If you do struggle with this, there's the classic book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which might help you. Some people's answer is to dive into gratitude, and gratitude is, of course, very important. But I've also seen and heard far too much toxic positivity, when gratitude becomes a required state of mind, as if you're not being grateful enough if you struggle with fear or anger or sadness. I've spoken many times about how easily guilt can turn into shame, where you come to believe that you're a bad person because of things you feel guilty about. And this is when guilt is at its most dangerous. So let's hear now from Athletic Greens or AG1 for their special offer for self-work listeners. But when we come back, we're going to focus on seven steps toward self-forgiveness. Our partner AG1 has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work. And I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com selfwork self-work Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. If you've listened to self-work, you know I research the topics and then try to decide where I'm going to throw my own experience in. I looked at a couple of lists about self-forgiveness, what you need to do, what are the steps, and actually, I didn't feel all that great about them. They seemed too complicated to me and way too jargonistic. So, I decided to take a stab at this myself. Let's use a real-life example so that we'll have something tangible and specific to apply. Let's say what you need to forgive yourself for is ending a relationship badly. Let's say you totally blamed the other person for the problems within the relationship, and you now can begin to see that that was a mistake. So let's use that example to talk about self-forgiveness and how you go about it. Again, what can you do about it? Here's number one. You have to want to forgive yourself. Sometimes not forgiving yourself or hanging on to guilt can become a way of life. It can become what causes you to avoid, in this instance, another relationship. Or you come to believe you're somehow less than. And it's like a role you take on. Oh, yes, I'm less than because I made a mistake or I didn't do the right thing. Quite opposite to that, it could also be a sign that you don't take enough responsibility. You don't want to forgive yourself because you don't think you did anything wrong. So it's sort of interesting. It's a duality. You might not forgive yourself because you immerse yourself in blame, or you might not forgive yourself because you tend to not take responsibility. So you have to want to forgive yourself and feel that that is a need. Here's number two. Look at your past and try to determine first if you were forgiven yourself or were you constantly blamed. Again, this is on a dual spectrum. If you've not been given permission to forgive, if you grew up in a family or culture that never lets you forget your mistakes, remember what happened last time, you may not know how to move past guilt. So you literally may not know how to forgive yourself. Or the opposite dynamic could also exist. Here's that duality. Maybe you grew up in a family where you weren't encouraged to see yourself honestly, to own your part in problems. So you got off scot-free because you were pampered or spoiled. Again, either end of the spectrum could cause a problem where you were always being blamed and never learned that forgiveness is important. Or if you were rarely, if ever, expected to realize your own culpability in a situation Now, you have to look at yourself in the mirror very hard on this one and try to say, could I be one of those kinds of people? The patient I mentioned before, here's her situation. She'd grown up in a family where she was labeled a black sheep. So she carries around with her the idea that she's less than, that she's always screwing up, being disappointing. So guess what? She tries to be perfect and, of course, fails because none of us are perfect. So there was some history there that once she realized, oh, I've always thought of myself as someone who was screwing up. I've never known how to forgive myself. It was important recognition for her to connect the past with the present. Now, number three, if you see this dynamic in your past, then you may need to talk this out with a therapist, saying things like, I can't seem to forgive myself, or I'm scared to forgive myself. Does that mean I'm not taking responsibility? Or again, on the other side of the spectrum, I'm always blaming others. You acknowledge that you can make a mistake just like everyone else and learn from that mistake. Here's number four. So now I want you to journal some. Write out what your mistake was. Ask yourself questions like, did I know it was a mistake when I did it? Or did I not realize what I now realize? This is such an important question because if the answer is yes to the first question, did I know it was a mistake? then maybe you are looking at a more destructive pattern, an addiction, a bad habit, a callousness to others or to yourself. You just keep making similar mistakes one after the other. And if that's what you find, you'll need to look at yourself and journal even more about, so what am I scared of? What kind of change am I scared to make if I just keep making the same mistake over and over? Knowing that it's a mistake. But if you didn't know you were making a mistake at the time, you have to look at yourself and regret the mistake, feel remorse, but know you're learning. And again, forgive yourself. Learn how to forgive yourself for that mistake. Number five, you ask yourself, if someone else I cared about made this mistake, would I treat them the same way I'm treating myself? Probably not. I've had many a patient say, that some kind of mistake that I tell them I made Wasn't a big deal. They kind of look at me like, well, of course, you're not perfect and you made a mistake, so okay. And then they say, I'd just move on from that. That's what they say to me. But then they look at me and say, I realize that I think my mistake was much worse. So they can be very compassionate with other people about the mistakes they make, but they're deeming that their own mistakes are far worse. Now, why is that? Again, we're talking about having self-compassion. To realize that your yardstick for yourself is far harsher than your yardstick for other people. Number six, visualize, imagine, or write out what it might be like for you to forgive yourself. What would change? How would you feel? If you can see it, you can begin to live it. I'll repeat this. If you can see yourself forgiving yourself, then you can begin to live the life that you see. Imagine not taking all the blame or imagine taking your share and then moving on. What would that feel like? What might you learn? Try to do some writing about that. If I take my share of the responsibility for the problem and I begin the work of forgiving myself, then I have self-compassion while also acknowledging that I was at fault or that I feel remorse for hurting someone else or whatever the mistake was. It's an and here, folks. It's I can feel compassion for myself, and I can feel remorse for what I did. Here's number seven. Do something constructive about your guilt. Make amends in some way if it's possible. Apologize. Admit the mistake. But again, you don't want to wallow in self-pity. You want to admit the mistake, but you don't want to wallow in guilt. Two people who get divorced, for example, can find closure in their relationship if both people admit to what their mistakes were and move on together. That's not always possible. Some people don't want to forgive you and need to hold on to anger or resentment. And sometimes some folks can't seem to forgive themselves. And the months and even years ahead are filled with self-recrimination. That's a waste of time. So self-forgiveness is a skill that you want to develop. And again, I'm going to repeat myself. It's an and here. I can feel remorse. I can make amends. I can do what I can to not make the mistake again. I can take my share of the responsibility. And I can forgive myself. I can have self-compassion. Speak Pipe Message from DrMargaretRutherford.com I received a voicemail from someone recently who'd had a terrible, terrible betrayal from her therapist. Now, again, the topic is abortion. And for any of you who feel strongly either way, please don't let that get in the way of you hearing this process that went awry. Okay, here's her voicemail My therapist for four and a half years. Three years into my therapy, I decided to trust him enough to reveal some painful things in my past. I had had abortion. Recently, my therapist let it slip out that he believes all abortion is murder. I have since terminated this therapist as he has re-traumatized me. I had no termination, and he will not apologize for his comments. I do not want to report him because I don't want to put myself through that. I don't know where to turn to because I have been totally abandoned and feel re-traumatized by the person I came to to help. What can I do? This was a terrible error by the therapist. His beliefs are certainly his right to have, but to let it slip what those beliefs were to a patient that had already confided her pain to him was atrocious. It is a difficult thing to handle to have a patient confide something to you that you have strong beliefs about as a therapist. And, of course, we don't start out the relationship knowing what secrets or confidences our patients are going to share. So there is no real way to prepare. But when he heard her say she'd had an abortion, maybe not immediately, but sometime after, first he needed to get supervision about what to do from someone who had served on an ethics committee, for his licensing organization. Now, maybe he did this. Most likely, at least for a psychologist, the advice would be to find a way to refer. Now, this might seem odd to your patient and might seem like an abandonment to them, but I think it's far better to do that because you do have strong beliefs that are then coloring the way you're listening to your client. And that's called countertransference. So he needed to refer this patient and end the relationship himself. That's difficult, but I think it would have been better than the debacle that occurred. Clients are going to confide to a therapist what they feel shame about. That might be an affair, abandoning a child, a war crime or gang-related crime. You never know. Also, after he had, quote-unquote, let it slip, an apology would not mean that he was apologizing for his beliefs, but he would be being apologetic for hurting her with them. She trusted him as a confidant. And there was obviously no appropriate closure, which she perceives might have happened with an apology from him, again, not for his beliefs, but for the fact that he realized that he had hurt her and wounded her for sharing those beliefs with her. I've had people ask me about my political or religious views. Interestingly, those questions have become much more frequent in the last few years, which is likely a reflection of what's going on in our culture here in the United States. I don't reveal those. What I say instead is, I've written and podcasted extensively. I hope you can see who I am through that activity. If you need a more direct answer, I understand and that's your right, but then I'm not the therapist for you. Other therapists may advertise themselves as faith-based or of a certain religious belief, and that's their choice, and of course the choice of someone who then wants to see them. I've worked with a couple of clients who'd experienced sexual abuse by their prior therapist. And I'm reminded of that work in answering this question because I think she probably needs to work this out with another therapist. Of course, returning to a therapist's office and learning to trust again will be very, very hard. And much of the early work will be about trust building, but that's what I'd recommend here. That this listener reach out to a therapist who's known by her friends or family and whose reputation is clear for who she is and how she does therapy. If not that, I might recommend writing a letter to her past therapist and trying to convey to him her feelings about his actions or lack of action. But what's most important here is this person not set herself up for more hurt. And if she perhaps thought, oh, he's bound to answer my letter and apologize. What if he wrote a letter back that was demeaning toward her or angry toward her that would do more damage? So you have to think very carefully through this choice if you reach out again. She says it took her three years to trust him, so I can only imagine what kind of trauma this listener has suffered in her past if it took that amount of time to trust. I wish her and all of you all the best. This is a sticky issue and very complicated. I'm sorry you got hurt. And I hope that my words and my suggestions were helpful. Thank you all so much for being here. In the next two or three weeks, self work would have been a podcast for six years. And I'm so very proud of it and the work we've done. I'm honored to have you as a listener. I'm honored that you share this podcast with other people in your life or who you believe might benefit from it. Thank you so much. My book, perfectly hidden depression is available anywhere you buy books. I also wrote a book that I don't talk much about called Marriage is Not for Chickens. It's actually a little gift book. It's also available on Amazon, and it's a great gift for some people who are getting married who maybe have an anniversary. It came from a post that I did for the HuffPost that actually had 200,000 likes and 50,000 shares, so I made it into a little book. It's called Marriage is Not for Chickens. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can subscribe where you listen, and I'd love that. Or you can subscribe at DrMargaretBrotherford.com, and you'll get a weekly newsletter there. Only one, I promise. If you are in the hurricane-struck areas, the typhoon-struck areas of the world, please know we are thinking about you. And please, if you can't help in any way, do so. Thank you for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been self